0: Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, we make it a reality, we are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn, with me the physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Dan,
1: it is so great to be here. As we know, my first choice was to make it out into space. My second choice was to live underwater with mermaids um, and mermen. Um, And today, I think we're going to just kind of wrap up that second choice for me and determine if my dream can ever become reality.
0: Well, we definitely talked about one hostile environment uh, inhospitable to human beings uh, last time with Beavis and Butthead, and today we're going to talk about an equally inhospitable form for human beings, but not for life, and that is going to be the key to this. And there is one man who has a lot of life and a lot of spunk to him, (laughs) and that's our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebzer. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week?
2: You know, Dan, this week I just need to relax, so I took a little vacation to the Italian Riviera. I'm in this beautiful little seaside village. It's totally idyllic. There's cobblestone streets, historic architecture, and the locals tell all these amazing stories about sea monsters. Oh well, that is interesting. I do love local tales for sure, Ben. Uh, and tales is going
0: to be a theme of today's episode. Now, this you know, this is inspired by classic stories of mermaids. Uh, but that implies just females. We're going to talk about mer men, mer people, is what I'm going to call it. Uh, p- a possibility of of human like creatures living in our oceans. What would that look like? Now, one way we're going to get this, you know, get this out right at the top of the show. Uh, you beat me last time, Denon. You're not going to beat me this week. Fascinating nouns. I did a whole episode on the Wiki Watchy mermaids, which are a group of women who dress up like the classic mermaid with a fish tail, and they do all sorts of cool little tricks while underwater, breathing only with little air hoses. Now, before we get into this, Ben, as a technological fix to mermaids, you talked about maybe creating an underground city uh, with a whole, you know, a whole infrastructure of-, of air tubes. Tell me how that would work really quickly
2: before we go biological and everything. Well, I think I think the reality is, if if mer if mer people are are mammals, and they live at the bottom of the ocean, then they need air, or they they'd be surfacing all the time, and the whale watching boats would see them. Mm-hmm. So clearly, they must be manufacturing their own air down there. They're either splitting the the, uh, the water into hydrogen and oxygen, you know, letting the hydrogen bubble up and bleed off and then breathing the oxygen, or maybe they have some extraction systems that can d- dissolve the air out of the water for them to breathe the way gills do, but doing it into a tank so that they can then breathe scuba style. Uh, either way, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, but certainly a difficult one to uh, pull off long-term safely. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely say so. Uh, But I I like that as
0: as an intro of how we can solve this technologically. But I think the answer to this is going to be biologically and, and also cinematically, uh, because I watched a lot of movies and television shows about all sorts of mer people. Not the least of which was *The Shape of Water* and *The Creature from the Black Lagoon*, which are extraordinarily similar. Dare I say *Entangled*, Denon, uh, and probably the most realistic. For my money, uh, I watched Splash uh, with Daryl Hannah, Luca, uh, which, of course, uh, is a great Pixar movie, The Little Mermaid. Everyone's familiar with The Little Mermaid. And Mermaid, A Body Found, which was a a mockumentary on um, Animal Planet, and I discovered that one of my buddies from college actually wrote that, which was which was exciting to see. That's why you always watch the credits, people, uh, see who made it. And, and, you know, what I learned from all of these movies is that these are literally fish-out-of-water stories. You know, is it a mammal? Uh, is it is it an amphibian? What we can say, and I'll finish with this, is it's not the Fiji mermaid of the B.T. Barnum days, which was just um, a... a a Monkey top, a monkey torso sewn into a fish bottom. We can rule that out, although Denon, I did talk about that on my uh on one of my fascinating nouns episodes uh about uh of a, a sideshow in Canada. So I got two in there, but Denon, what do you think about this? I said a lot there, I brought in a lot. What do you think about all this so far?
1: Well, you know, I think the bio first, I just think the biology of this is fascinating. I mean, there is. You know, a sense where people are like, ah, mermaids are totally mythological and they can never happen. And yet we know evolutionarily that, right, life started in the sea, basically all water breathing. You get life on land. You have amphibians that can both breathe air and live in the water, have an interesting life cycle. And then you have the mammals that breathe there, started on land. And for some reason, some of them went back in the water and became perhaps arguably the fourth or fifth most adorable creature, the dolphins, um, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, we do have, um, you know, river otters and mongooses still, you know, at the top of the list, but you know, you've got dolphins, right. you've got whales, you've got killer whales. So y- you have right. evolution and biology always doing interesting things. So the idea mm-hmm. that a, a sort of humanoid primate type animal um, would, through evolution exist in the sea you know, it's really about, well, what are the evolutionary pressures that would drive that particular decision tree? And it's more about that and less about the actual form. So I think as mythological as it feels, it might be less mythological than people think.
2: You know, I think it's also interesting. You just made me realize something, Denon, that as mammals went back to the ocean, not only did they get comfortable there, they have kind of dominated the ocean. (laughs) Uh, you know, just like mammal, we here on land, the humans have kind of dominated here, the whales and the dolphins and the seals, they're kind of like the top dogs when it comes to the, the ocean. You know, the whales are the largest animals, you know, very few thing, the, you know, orcas aren't afraid of anything. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a dangerous world out there for the non-mammals in the ocean. <laughs> Yes, that it is for sure. It's a dangerous world anywhere in the ocean
0: uh, when you got sharks running around. Uh, I do want to make one quick change here. Uh, You know, I mentioned the Fiji mermaid, Scott McClellan in Carnival Diablo. That's the Fascinating Nouns episode. I'll put a link. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, But, you know, we talked about, you know, know, you know, wolves going back into the ocean, people going back, you know, coming out from the ocean onto land and going back into the ocean. But this is strange. Convergent evolution is very strange in how things can develop very similar traits. You know, the octopus, you know, I got to bring them in here as well. They developed a brain that is similar to ours, but it has nothing, it's not connected to our the, the evolution of our brain in any way. So this happens a lot. Uh, and in that mockumentary, uh, Mermaid, A Body Found, it is a mockumentary. Uh, I do understand that. It's worth watching if you can find it. But they bring up something called the aquatic ape theory, which is this belief that hum- humans have very unique traits. That are that are not uh, that are not like any other mammals, which includes a lack of hair, uh, strange hand webbing, a subcutaneous fat layer—you know—features that may help them in an aquatic environment, and that we evolved, human beings evolved, kind of in a semi-aquatic environment, so we could eat shellfish, and the iodine helps your brain grow, and all this stuff. Now, this is not a theory widely accepted by the academic community. As a matter of fact, here's my third shameless plug, Denon. Henry Gee, who I talked to on Fascinating Nouns, we talked about the entire history of life on the planet. He thinks that that, uh, that theory is akin to creationism. Uh, so he's not a fan. So I don't know where I stand with it. But I do want to get your guys' thoughts on, on that because in some ways that is micro uh, microevolution in human beings in a semi-aquatic environment. I don't think it's entirely out of the realm of possibility.
1: Well, let's just say, Dan, before I give my opinion, which will obviously be highly intelligent and accurate— um, mm-hmm. That everyone should remember: I am a physics phenom, not a biology right. phenom. So you know, just just um, the yeah. disclaimer. Quick reminder, you know, right? Yep. You know, quick disclaimer. reminder <laughs> is always important to have at the beginning. Um, and if you're really you know confused by this water episode and what's happening, you can put water in a mug um, and yes. drink it. But we're talking about evolution driving change. Um, I, mm-hmm. I suspect this is not the ideal evolutionary source. For drinking water. I, I
0: don't know. Maybe not. I'm just throwing it out there to the universe. It could be. We don't know. I would suggest that it might be the greatest way to drink water, but yeah, I think time will tell. What do you think, Ben?
2: Well, I think you a water bottle will suit mm-hmm. you better when it comes to drinking water, whereas a mug is more for, uh, say, a hot beverage, such as a tea or a coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the water bottle, it encloses the water, keeps it fresh. You could even bring this into the ocean with you. And then drink later when you get out of the ocean. Whereas that mug, you're gonna end up with salty tea.
0: It's adaptable just like, you know, just like all things in nature. It adapts to the environment around it. And as people and things adapt, they create new biology. And I would say biology is nature's technology. <laughs> this is the technology that, that animals, that biology uses to get and adapt to their environment. It's extraordinarily important and will be a theme for this entire episode. FGGBT.com forward slash merch. That's where you find all this stuff. Uh, but wh- what you're not going to find there are these incredible theories that we have, not the least of which is how did creatures how could human-like creatures evolve in the ocean i'm going to i'm going to preempt it here guys and we're talking about mammals i'm going to go the creature from the black lagoon route here i think there is some sort of possible amphibian-esque evolution that's where i'm going to go because i think some of those features make the uh, an aquatic environment much more livable uh but i think to in order to get there We've got to talk about how the physics of the water, of living in the in in water, how those physics would be different than living on land, uh, because there's there's quite a bit going on here, Denon. Um, so walk me through how something would have to evolve to to work in the ocean.
1: Well, I think it's it's two questions, Dan, and I'm going to break it up into two different parts. Um, okay. One is let's just take the example of sound, um, speaking and hearing, and 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 these sort of features, right? If When you speak, right, what controls the sound you hear is the shape of your voice box, your your larynx, and your mouth. Mm -hmm. And what that Mm -hmm. does is it shapes the wavelengths that are allowed. So it's just like musical instruments. You know, you design different musical instruments. We think of it in terms of the pitch and the frequency. But the key piece is the size sets the wavelength. And then Mm -hmm. the speed of sound in air sets the frequency you hear. And that's, that's the physics of generating sound. So the the wavelength's fixed. The frequency is determined by the speed of sound. So when you go into water, okay. what happens is the frequency will change initially because early on, right, your, your voice box won't have changed. You'll generate sound the same way. The wavelength will be the same, but the speed of sound in water is very different. So now the frequency is different. So the first thing you evolution will do is either – change your hearing because otherwise you can't hear the right frequencies, or change Mm -hmm. your voice box to make different wavelengths to make the right frequency. So the next set of genetic mutations will determine who survives, someone with different ears or someone with a different voice structure, or maybe both. Both, maybe. Yeah, or maybe both. So that's, that's that's the first obvious thing sound does to you biologically. I mean, not sound. Water. <laughs> Sorry. Right. The water affects the sound, and that's the first biological impact. Right. That makes sense. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I mean, I'd have to say, based on the mammals that do live in the ocean, when you think about whales and dolphins and things like that, the way they vocalize underwater is these very high-pitched squeaks and, and beeps and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so... A lot of beeps underwater. A lot of beeps A underwater. lot of beeps, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very much... It's like R2-D2, but the under run, the ocean. The Roadrunner
0: run would be perfect. <laughs>
2: right. Um. So I think, I think what's important to, to see, it, we have this evidence already from the existing animals that they, they kind of transform into these high-pitched uh, squeaks and things because that's the sound that's kind of easier to make in that environment. And you also have to think about, you know, you're making the noise with your lungs, which is air, mm-hmm. but your medium is water. So you kind of have to do this without opening your mouth, which is its own kind of (laughs) (laughs) complexity, which, you know, you don't really think about, but that's a, that's a big problem. Like how do you even make noise when you're having to transfer mediums like that, uh, after the noise is made, well, I can't drink water without choking, so uh, I couldn't imagine actually living
0: in an aquatic. And I live in an air environment, right? Like I don't live yeah. in, underwater. So, uh, but I think that that's interesting because I was thinking about I was thinking about sound and how some animals use it, how it's heard, and I think you know one of the things you have to keep in mind here is that you don't necessarily want to broadcast your location to everyone right? I mean, there's lots of predators in the ocean. Uh, what I like about Luca uh, and and Splash, these are two interesting things here, is Splash, you've got, you know, um, Daryl Hannah's character has a, a high-pitched, in you know, you, you can't say the, the her name uh, on land. It sounds like a bunch of screeches, but underwater, probably perfect. But in Luca, you've got everyone on the ground, walking around in kind of very, you know, like a like a, a small town, but there are still predators. And so I imagine what you have when you have that close contact, maybe you don't use sound at all. Maybe you use sign language. I mean, I think that would be a way that's an easy way to communicate what you want to say without creating any sound and alerting predators to your location.
1: I really like that idea, Dan. And also it goes to maybe some of the things we know your favorite animal, the octopus, does. I oh, mean, yeah. maybe maybe up. some of what you communicate by is is basically shape and color changes. Um, ah, and, yes. and perhaps okay. maybe color changes in your skin in certain patterns, um, which raises the That's second great. problem of evolving to underwater is light right you have, to, have right. to ask what depth are you really going to live at because you know light it goes through water def- differently different wavelengths are absorbed different wa- light wavelengths go through um obviously water is denser so the light doesn't go as far and penetrate all the way down so that would also determine if if sign language could you even see right mm-hmm. um or, Fair or other other mechanisms colors might look different depending on your depth because if you have different wavelengths so um, I do like I do like these quiet modes of communication Dan um, it is a short distance communication so you know it's more about you know line of sight
0: perhaps communication yeah well if you, look if you're trying to avoid a shark I, I'm happy learning sign language I mean I'll learn it in the weekend <laughs> to avoid getting eaten by a shark or even a megalodon if I, we live. You know, millions of years ago. Uh, but, you know, the other thing here, Denon, that you could do is not just color, but we see this in the shape of water, which is bioluminescence. You know, you mm-hmm. can have a way to show with with different, with with lights, lit colors, uh, which is also something very interesting. And also on top of that, you know, if we're going to go the, the sound route, one thing I wanted to mention here is that some dolphins echolocate. Uh, I learned that in a, uh, a Sega game, Echo the Dolphin, I believe, <laughs> is what the game was called. Uh, but you use echolocate. <laughs> To navigate as a dolphin in a video game. But there's also a human being who's done this, and that's Daniel Kish, who's blind at a young age. He uh, unfortunately had cancer in his eyes, had them removed at 14 months, has known his whole life being blind, taught himself how to echolocate. Uh, this might be a future Fast A Nouns episode because this guy's local, and I, I, he is so interesting, uh, just a marvel, and he's able to navigate the entire world just like Daredevil in some ways from Marvel Comics by making sounds, making clicking sounds, and getting a visual representation of his environment. And I believe if he could do that here on land, this would be extraordinarily enhanced if, if a human could do that, or a human-like creature could do that in the ocean. Well, I think that also connects
1: something, Dan. That's amazing. First, let me say. Mm-hmm. Second, yeah. it's a it's a brilliant, um, a, um, shameless plug to plug an episode you haven't even made yet. Um, and yeah. third, <laughs> <laughs> you
0: like that? I'm trying to one up you, Denon. You I, nailed me last time. I know. I know. I know. You I are raise on the a roll, here, baby.
1: You're on yeah. a roll. But but third, it, it does you know remind us. You know, when I think about it, you know, the to me as a child growing up, I was always fascinated by dolphins and chimpanzees from the perspective of here were the other two species that were always held up as learning language, you know, Mm -hmm. perhaps learning to communicate almost as intelligent as humans. One of my favorite science fiction set of books um, is the Uplift series where basically humans have figured out how to actually do the final genetic engineering. So dolphins Hmm. and, and chimpanzees have basically human level intelligence and are doing stuff. And Dolphins have this interesting advantage of the echolocation, which, you know, as you said, some humans maybe can learn, but it also raises this issue of the whole opposable thumb question, right? Like, we are driven, a lot of what humans have done has been driven by our development of technology, which has been, you know, fundamentally based on our our, our opposable thumbs. And dolphins perhaps um, have reached the upper limit of their intelligence because, they don't have the ability or the need to make technology. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's a benefit, um, as we've right. talked about in some of our previous episodes. <laughs> right. <You know>? Intelligence <laughs> may not be the route to superior the animals. Yeah. So, so the yeah. echolocation yeah. is an interesting sort of connecting theme in all of this, I find.
2: Yeah. I, I think... I th- I mean, to me, it seems it's the it's the posable thumbs issue. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, because we do see that some sea creatures that still have hands do use tools. Like otters will... Use rocks and things to bash open the sea urchins they eat. And yeah, like Denon, that.
0: they sure will. So, otters will.
2: So I, I think what what it comes down to is really it's it's the biology precedes the technology use or or prohibits it. And dolphins have adapted and specialized in such a way that their bodies are enough tool for them that they don't need anything beyond that. Whereas whereas other animals. Like humans or or chimps or or things that have hands and they've they've decided to use tools rather than evol- having their body well they didn't decide it nature decided <laughs> for them that their that their bodies uh, could make use of other objects to be tools for them rather than uh, really uh, specializing on a single type of body structure that is the tool you need.
0: Or you could turn their body into the technology. You could have a beaver has got a tail. That is their technology. Anyway, sorry, Danny. Go ahead. Oh, no.
1: I was going to say, Dan, you and I are having an interesting, you know, shameless promotion competition. Um, <laughs> right. I, yeah. I do think three, three we, to both zero have, right now. we both have some very good quotes, but I've been in, yeah. I, unformally keeping, or unformally, inform, informally, informally keeping track um, mm. and – um, their body is tool enough for them, I think, is putting Ben ahead in the lead of T-shirt uh, quotes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Ben 100% leads that, that list yeah. for sure. <laughs> their body is tool enough. Uh, that is, that's very accurate for sure. Uh, but, you know, this, this, this raises the question. We're talking about technology adaptation. You know, when we, in every single story that we see, there is this conversion where the mer-creature comes on to land. Right, where, where uh, whether it's by magic in *A Little Mermaid*, uh, whether it's um, you know by by adaptating, uh, adaptating, uh, adapting, adapting, <laughs> adapting, switching from gills to lungs with *The Shape of Water* uh, and *Creature from the Black Lagoon*, or even *Luca* uh, and *Splash*, where there's a transformation that's non-magical, there is a conversion, and I think that there are some real considerations, not the least of which is breathing and oxygen intake. Uh, but there are some things to consider and some physics questions to answer because. We've talked about the physics between the water and the land are very different. Uh, let's talk about gravity for sure.
1: <laughs> well, D- Dan, so I think a couple quick things, you know, for me. Initially, you just have to avoid the time scale issue, right? That that okay. is clearly a cinematic effect. We know lots of movies, you know, mess with time, you know, mm-hmm. you know, particularly like the biopics. Um, they they compress things in people's lives that took a long time into a short you know, short moment in time just to keep the plot going. So let's assume they have a little more time for their transformation than the movies um, portray. Okay. Cause you know, movies are not hundred percent accurate. Um, That's true. Un- as much as it did. pains me to right. admit. Right, yes. <laughs> you know. right. Um, now that, that being said, I think you alluded to one of the key things, which is why I love little mermaid and Lucas so much is they both address this issue of the transition to walking. Now, mm-hmm. Little Mermaid, I would expect to have even more of an issue with this, though she sings a beautiful song about walking. It's gorgeous, right? Yep. She clearly understands that walking is a possibility, though she doesn't remember what legs are called at one point or, or mm-hmm. what they're for um, <laughs> right. in the song. Um, Luca has legs, right? Which is yeah. an interesting twist on the mer person, you Definitely. know, um, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, but still has that issue with walking, and you're right. It's gravity, and how you interact with gravity is very different in the water and on land. Um, walking is basically controlled falling. We all know that, right? That's what right, we first yeah. learned, right? And, and it's and it's a very mm-hmm. interesting pendulum motion. There's a lot of cool physics in walking. You know, swimming is basically propulsion. Um, mm-hmm. it, you're buoyant in the water, and you're basically flying. So, the physics of these I could go on for hours and hours, dan, because it's just fascinating
0: because it's fascinating physics. another show we should have wait that's a great that's <laughs> a great title for a show uh what do you, what do you think about this ben? I'm curious what you think about the biomechanics of
2: walking and how gravity affects that well well, first of all, I've just realized that, according to Pixar, both walking and flying are falling with style <laughs> um, <laughs> that's true. Uh, but I think it's it's fascinating to think about because um, we do also see Luca kind of walk a little bit underwater, mm-hmm, so he, mm-hmm. he's at least a little familiar with it because you know he they're they're <laughs> they're bottom dwellers. I mean, it's kind of harsh to say, but, <laughs> but they are you know. He, but they but they live on on the bottom of the ocean. They dwell or there. The sea, for I sure. guess. Technically, it's really the the Mediterranean Sea. It would seem, but uh, but they're but they're walking around on the bottom as he as he you know does his his uh, shepherding of the fish and things like that. And so I think he's equipped already to kind of know how walking works. But the fact is, once you're on air and your body weight's no longer supported by the water, you don't have the resistance of the water slowing you down as you fall forward, you know, it's a very different biomechanical situation. And I'm very impressed at how kind of quickly he picked it up. You know, he picked it up in... You know what? Ten minutes, five minutes. <laughs> if you that, know, I don't know. Ta- it it's takes a montage. babies, you yeah. know, months to figure out how to walk. So you know, it's it's impressive that he gets it working so quickly. I gotta say. Well, part of the thing that makes that a
0: little unbelievable, as much as it pains me to admit it, is that. All of our muscles as human beings living on land are designed to defy gravity. That's what it's for, right? Mm. Our legs are designed to push up from the ground and keep us upright. We have muscles in our spine keeping us upright. When you're in the ocean, your muscles are designed to propel you to push water around you. Uh, so this is very different. You would have to develop those muscles. They may exist, uh, but they're they're not they're not where they need to be to support your weight for any length of time. And that you know, as you mentioned, what's really interesting is you have when you're in the ocean, you do have the ocean kind of keeping you upright. You know, you can't really, it's a slow motion fall (laughs) in the ocean and there's nowhere really to land, right? But Mm -hmm. it's much quicker when you're on land. If you fall, you're going to hit the ground and it's going to hurt. You know, and so you you need to be able to keep yourself upright through balance. And as we see with like the creature from the Black Lagoon and, and Shape of Water, when they're in the ocean, you still have to keep that balance to keep upright. You've got fins and other other dynamic body parts that are helping to keep you upright. So not only is it not just your muscles and not just the water, you have adaptations, physical adaptations, things uh, we don't have here on land, which makes it a little more difficult, I think.
1: And You know, one thing that would have helped, but would have made um, the story trickier um, is if they kept their tail. I I really liked in Hmm. Luca... Right, this, this sort of nod to one direction of biological adaptation, and I don't mean the band in this case. Um, right. You know, <laughs> of, of the, That if we evolved back as mammals, it would have been at a stage perhaps coming from a primate that still had a tail. Um, mm-hmm. There are reasons to think the tail is useful. Um, look, crocodiles and alligators use tails to great effect um, mm-hmm. in, in many different ways. And if you then had to transition to being walking on land, um, the tail does help a little with balance. And it does mm-hmm, kind of change definitely. that walking um, physics and dynamics some. Um, but what I also liked is they, they really made a nod to the idea of phantom limbs because the tail disappears yes. and he feels like he has it. Um, and that's a cool right. shout out to Pixar. Uh, they, they do throw some really nice science and biology into their films when they can. Um, and so I really like that
2: feature there. Although I, I'd be, it'd be interesting if they kept the tail because then I feel like they'd walk around like T Rexes. Yeah, know, yeah. Well, that, that's forward. that's what I'm yeah. saying. It would make it would yeah. make
1: convincing people you're a human harder. So it, it could Much add harder. an element of yeah. humor to the movie that they missed. It could have been an <laughs> opportunity.
2: Yeah, it, it's fascinating just the mechanics of it because where one, where does that tail go? But it, it's it's this, it's definitely a concern because. That's a lot of uh, Luca's body weight are those tails. Like that, that's a significant limb. It's, it's longer than their legs. And so to just lose that and then have to totally recombobulate your locomotion without that, um, that extra appendage, I think would be pretty challenging. So it just goes to show even more so how um, good at adapting both Luca and his family are.
0: I think so and when it comes to adapting there's nothing that's a greater adaptation in my opinion than being able to breathe underwater and being able to breathe on land and in every single thing that I've mentioned except mermaids uh, a body found do you have you have a creature that can both live in the ocean and and successfully breathe there obviously uh, and then come onto land and do the same so this is why I think there's more there's more Amphibian DNA here than mammal, although maybe it's a uh, mel- mel- uh, mf- mamphibian? Uh, man- man- <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I've discovered a new species here, despite the fact that I can't say it. What do you think, Dennis?
1: Well, you know, I do think for me, one of the things here is to remember um, the embryo goes through all the stages of evolution. If, and if I remember my biology correctly, and I'm sure you both will quickly um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, We as humans actually do go through a gill phase as an embryo um, because we basically go through all those stages of evolution in the the process of becoming who we are. And so evolution is kind of tricky. I'm with you, Dan. This has got to be a gill-lung situation, Um, and it's an interesting question of did it branch off when an amphibian – kind of started evolving in the direction of, you know, humanoid shape, intelligence, and so on. You know, is this like the, you know, is that what's going on? Or is this uh, a mammal reverting evolutionarily and developing gills? Um, A different path back to the ocean than, than, say, the whales took. Like, is this, dare I say it, the actual true story of the sea monkeys, you know, that were sold um, in the back of comic books. <laughs>
0: well, I, I, I will tell you that humans don't have gills. I thought that as well. But when doing research for this, human babies develop gill arches, which become jaws and other, uh, other bones. Oh, okay. Structures. So
1: there's, there's artifacts of what the gills were, but not the yes. actual
0: stage of gills.
1: I appreciate your clarity there, Dan.
0: Yeah. Well, we do live in, in a fluid sac, though right? So we have found a way um, while in development to be able to live and exist and absorb nutrients through a fluid medium.
2: Well, I mean, I'd argue, I mean, most of those nutrients, though, come from the umbilical cord, which is, (laughs) you know, we're getting basically an IV of nutrients, not, not, I don't think the do the gills breathe at all? I don't have any idea. Uh, I I am <laughs> I, I am neither a biologist so. nor am I uh, <laughs> a, 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 uh, what do yeah. you call
0: it? Uh, an obstetrician? Is that a is that a baby doctor? Yeah, pediatrician. That's the, right that's the word. That's
2: the word. No, Obstetrician, that's right the first for time for kids. Okay, all
0: right. See, I don't know. Um, I don't even I don't even know the transition from baby to child. So how can I possibly <laughs> go from yeah. mammal to amphibian? Uh, uh,
2: although I think it's it's an important point though, because it, it does show the the convergent. It does show the common ancestor of all creatures that both that amphibians, reptiles, mammals, uh, fish, like everything basically looks the same at these very early fetal uh, levels because they are the same. Like the they or they have the same body type. We all kind of come from the same body shape and then branch out after that fact. Um, so you know, there's things there, and it 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 goes to show that. Were the right switches hit in a in a mammalian development, uh, you could end up with gills again, um, a la like Kevin Costner in Waterworld, mm-hmm. where right. he does have gills, and you know there there is there is that that structure is still somewhat there and could probably be turned back on under the right circumstances.
0: I do want to say something here for those of you out there listening who think I am a moron, and I don't blame you at all. Uh, what I was saying is when you are a baby, you're still in an all-fluid environment. Yes. A- and I think that that is important to understand, that at some stage, uh, as especially as you get close to, to being born, uh, you're basically a fully functioning human living in fluid. So uh, I don't know what that means, but I definitely think it's worth mentioning. Yeah, and I, I think if true. we were to
1: summarize here our discussion of what the embryo is doing, um, I, I hate to go political for a moment, um, Dan, but this does point out that you had three men trying to describe what's going on in a womb. And it did go
0: very <laughs> badly. Yeah, very will, humorous, I though. I would just say there may be no direct sure experience does. in this group, and that may sure, be part of what we're struggling from. That's right. That's exactly right. But uh, I have no interest in in, uh, in shaping any policy at all. I just love talking about it uh, and talking about mermaids. So um, I, I'm yep, giving myself yep. a pass here uh, for my <laughs>
2: ignorance, whether I, I should or I shouldn't. I think it's also interesting to think about the idea of amphibians because amphibians, generally speaking, are not saltwater creatures. There are a couple that can survive in saltwater, but it, it's kind of mm. fascinating mm. that that you know there's this potential here that if the the mer people are amphibians, that they're also a very highly adapted amphibian because, generally speaking, amphibians have absorbent skin, which In salt water, is really bad because they basically absorb the salt and poison themselves with with all that salt.
0: (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Well, you know, it's an interesting point here because, you know, we mentioned how uh, in several episodes, in Beavis and Butthead specifically, the last episode we did, that when you're a human being living on land, going into space is hostile. When when we started out the, uh, you know, life, we came in the ocean, came to land, the land was extraordinarily hostile to beings in the ocean. Now that we live on land human beings uh, and mammals going back into the ocean is extraordinarily hostile, um, <laughs> not, in the, not the least of which is our lack of ability to pull oxygen out of the water. Um, but also there's lots of stuff in there. It's very hostile. My point is, we are moving from hostile environment to hostile environment. These aren't mediums where people can just go freely from one or the other. And even amphibians live at the, the nexus point between the land and the sea. They don't just live in, in one or the other for the most part. That's what makes them so cool. They can live in both. And I think that for from an evolutionary standpoint, from a biological standpoint, that is extraordinarily difficult. The ability to walk that razor's edge between two hostile environments and when, where neither is your home, and yet you live in both. Oh, I'm
1: totally with you on that, Dan. And I think you, you, you've alluded to it, and I combine what you said with what Ben said. Um, it does point out that there is this third thing, that salt water and fresh water are very different, mm-hmm. right? We forget that for a saltwater creature, freshwater is incredibly hostile because exactly. they are they are designed to exist with a certain salt balance and vice versa. And so maybe what we are stumbling on is despite the cinematic representation of people being in the oceans, perhaps, as you said, the hmm. creature from the Black Lagoon is the most accurate because I'm assuming that lagoon, well, it could have been a brackish lagoon, but I'm assuming it was a freshwater lagoon and that... You know, perhaps the mer people are living in our lakes and rivers. And that is really why no one has found a mer person because they are looking in the
0: wrong place. Well, Loch Ness, I believe, is Lake Ness. And I'm not <laughs> saying that Nessie is a mer person, but maybe I'm saying Nessie's a mer person.
2: Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, Maybe and maybe swamp thing is the more accurate than the uh, black lagu- creature from the black lagoon. Too. He's plants.
0: That's a that's a whole difference. That's plants and, and human beings. What are you doing, Ben? We can barely handle. <laughs> we can barely handle mammals, amphibians, babies, wombs. Uh, don't bring plants into this. Uh, but let's let's quickly uh, talk about the tail. We have to we have to close here and just quickly talk about any possibility of a mer creature having a tail in the ocean or in a freshwater environment and coming onto land and then losing that tail and it becoming two functional appendages that allow for bipedal locomotion. Uh, I, I think, you know, there has to be something... If it's an ocean creature, the salinity, I'm guessing, would have to have some trigger. Maybe it is excessive water, which we see in Splash, where her tail comes out uh, when she takes a bath. I, I don't know. I- I, there's got to be something here. It might be difficult, uh, but then I know you have ideas on this. Well, I, I think the transition
1: from tail to legs is the easier transition. And, and we do see lots of um, situations where, you know— um, creatures transform or metamorphosize in one direction, and they rarely go back the other way. Um, and so, you know, if you think about a creature coming from a water environment to an air, um, maybe a water, you know, a drying out or a change in pH or a change mm-hmm, in salinity right. triggers a biological reaction. I don't think it would be as fast as what we see. But you, we do know, for instance, some of the sea mammals still have a very strong um, leg and bone structure, even if it looks like a tail on the surface. Right. So what you could have is a remorphing of that muscle, skin, um, and layer around those bones and a splitting of a tail into two legs. So major stretch. I know there are those in our audience who are going to severely doubt me on that one. Um, yeah. But I can see that happening on some time scale. I, I think it's very tricky to think about how do you re-merge that quickly because that's a lot of skin to regrow. Um, but again, there are the, the the occasional animal can have their tail cut off and they do eventually grow the tail back. Um, right. My my concern is that it, if you jumped into the water and waited as long as it takes those creatures to grow their tail back, um, there would be severe handicaps at this point. Um, and the movie would be very, very long.
2: I like that you brought this up. And, and that's one thing I like about the, the Luca body structure better is that they have the legs and the tail. And so it makes more sense for the tail to kind of shed and, and well, the regrow is tricky. I mean, obviously lizards, you know, there are lizards and reptiles that regrow their tail. But it, back to the amphibian thing, it makes a lot of sense. If you think about like tadpoles uh, growing into frogs, tadpoles have tails that eventually get reabsorbed into their body. Um, as the frog grows up from the tadpole. So you c- I could definitely see this as more of a one-way situation in that sense, where the merpeople emerge from the water and live on the land and, and uh, consume their tail, basically absorb their tail, as they become land-dwelling creatures. Well, it's interesting because there's a couple things here. Because If there was some sort of, let's say, a skin flap...
0: Okay, so maybe we don't go full amphibian. We go maybe m- mem- mem- amphibian. okay? You got marsupials, <laughs> sure. right? So a marsamphibian. Uh, they have t- they have flaps too, right? A kangaroo's got a pouch. So maybe there is some kind of skin flap that maybe goes over the leg structures and then creates a sort of tail that could either, as you get out on land, dries up and you shed it like a, like a snake skin, or it's reusable and kind of collapse. So then when, you know, the creatures walking around on land, it has a little bit of a skin flap. You can hide it under some baggy clothes or whatever. Uh, but there might be something here where you can have something like a wraparound dress, you know, like, a, you know, snake tail. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, mermaid tail by Diana von Furstenberg kind of a deal. Right. Maybe there's some kind of wraparound element where you can attach it. It stays, it works and it functions uh, but this would also be for creatures that are often on land, because if they're only coming on land once in a while, that would, from an evolutionary standpoint, I think would be phased out.
1: I, th- I think you're right, and it's interesting, Dan, because um, if you, unless you're trying to disguise yourself in the human world, right? You, you, if I, if I I'm trying to think of ways that you would seal it up in different things, less relevant, but you could imagine um, this wraparound flap easily coming off and on um and you don't even have to hide it right to your point it just becomes a dress right Right. you you just like Mm -hmm. you know um and and i've seen some dresses that are so tight fitting you do wonder how a person can even walk in them Um, i know you know yeah the way you know the way they're designed so you're real (laughs) close to a fin when you have that design structure right so um it's not you know you said biology is nature's technology um Biology could also be nature's dress design.
0: It could be. I've seen paint used as a dress as well, which is way more thin than a, than a dress, right? If, I didn't well, say yeah.
1: thin. I said tight. I said tight. tight. Okay.
0: Right. <laughs> D- Nothing tighter than paint on your skin either, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's but. true.
1: <laughs> Hard to yeah. wrap the paint around both legs, though. <laughs> <What> that's the <laughs> problem.
2: That? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Plaster, maybe.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, go- it goes back to the, the kind of technology possibility here that you know we have – mermaid style tails that, you know, people can wear as, you know, swim fins and things like that. So yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's a good solution. And, and you just got to wonder, like, where are they hiding that structure when they're walking around on their legs? <laughs> Yeah, I think, you just, I think you just, you know, tuck it back or it's on both the uh, legs or
0: it's, you know, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, maybe a question we won't get the answer to without building a biological structure uh, and, and thinking about it. But it's a good question, Ben. Uh, but it's not the only question. You know, there's probably more here from mermaids and mermen and more people that we didn't quite get to. So, Denon, is there anything that we, that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention about the merfolk?
1: Well, I do want to just briefly reiterate something I alluded to, which is I do love, and I hate to give somebody else a shameless plug, Dan, but I oh, do yeah. love... does count, by the commi- way. I know. I do love Pixar's commitment to accurate biology. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I happen to know some people who who have been advisors on things like Finding Nemo, who knew the person who was on Monsters, Inc., um, and they really believe to the best that they can of getting the biology right unless they need to do something for the storytelling. I like it when the science that is wrong is done by choice and design. Um, And this is why I really like the Luca mer people having the legs and the tail. Um, you know obviously you, you have to finesse the transition we've just talked about that we may have solved it it's a shame pixar didn't hire us which is the real reason i'm putting this in the errors and editions <laughs> so that they recognize the brain power right. in this group for their next um you know biologically scientifically based movie i think we are just the experts pixar is looking to to take their already excellent <laughs> game to the next level do you think that worked as a pitch, Dan? Do you I think mean, that's a heck of a promo.
0: <laughs> that's a heck of a promo. I mean, there's it, it, nothing like Pixar's error. That belongs in our errors, additions, and omissions <laughs> section. Because we've both been an error and an omission, and we need to be an addition. Uh, so I'm with you on all three fronts, Denon. Uh, but what about you, Ben? Is there anything about the merfolk that you wanted to talk about?
2: Well, I, I think what, what I really found interesting is that they kind of seemed... Uh, one thing I was kind of curious about is their strength. You know, we mm-hmm. see them... You know, being incredible bikers and all this other stuff in in the show, and they're incredible eaters. Like, uh, uh, you know, Alberto can you know suck down pasta with the best of them. He's great. So, so you know, it, it's it kind of got me thinking. Like, what is there this advantage that a, a sea creature would have in terms of being able to swallow food a lot faster? And you know, made me think about you know sharks and dolphins and how they eat prey whole and large amounts of it whole very frequently. And so I like, you know, I think it goes along with what Dan was saying. You know, it's more accuracy in the biology. You know, sea creatures eat eat faster and quicker and wholer than we do. And so obviously they'd be able to win a pasta eating competition. <laughs> that is true. Uh,
0: and, and that's what the, it's really that, that is the definition of a evolutionary advantage, is the amount of pasta you can eat. Uh, so I, God knows I'm I'm extraordinarily fit for my environment. Uh, now one of the things that <laughs> I wanted to mention, a couple things here. All the things I want to mention are cinematic. Uh, and and one shameless plug here, I'll stick it in there. Last one for you there, Dennett. Uh, the Shadows Over Intimate is an HP Lovecraft story about human-fish hybrids. Uh, It takes a much darker bent, but it's a really great story, and I did a whole episode on H.P. Lovecraft and the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, who they do uh, reenactments, uh, old-timey radio-like reenactments. One of my favorite things to listen to right around Halloween is their Shadows Over Innsmouth production. Uh, It is fantastic. And the other thing is the two movies that I was introduced to were... uh, Well, I was introduced to The Shape of Water, and I was reintroduced to The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I saw in 3D in college as a midnight movie. How fun is that? And one of the things that I realized, there's a lot of talk about the very the similarity between these two movies. And Guillermo del Toro, who did The Shape of Water, was highly inspired by The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And some people even call The Shape of Water a remake of Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is absolute bull honky. I'm saying that <laughs> Shape of Water is actually a sequel to the creature from the Black Lagoon, because what you see in the creature from the Black Lagoon is this attachment between that creature and a human female, and then in The Shape of Water, that romance is um, is brought together and strengthened. So there, it shows the connection uh, that people can have between other creatures, but also the connection between human... And whatever uh, this amphibian man, the gill man, they call him in the movie, there is a connection there. Um, because as you learn in a very weird scene, uh, they are sexually compatible, which was very shocking to me. So there's something there in our evolutionary tree. It's close enough. Um, and I highly recommend, if you haven't seen those two movies, watch them back to back for a fun night. They are great. Uh, but if you disagree with that, and I can't believe that you would, um, the best way to do that in the, inside a conversation here is to go check us out on social media. You can find the show on Twitter at F Triple G Pod, on Facebook at F Triple GBT. Website is at as FGGBT.com and all that great merch forward slash merch for that. But you can get in touch with us individually if you have something you want to talk about. Dennon, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at
1: Denon Michael. Just flip my name and put the Denon first. And then you can find me on Facebook. You
2: stick in a prof. It's at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B. Seepser. How do you spell that? Spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found
0: on Twitter, at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram, at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook, at Analytical Mastermind. And if you have a question that you want us to answer, best way to do that is send it to questions at FGGBT.com.
1: And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, remember to rate,
2: review, and subscribe. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss an episode. And finally, this show
0: contains powerful scientific information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. Now, if you have that choice before you, take this information and make the correct one. Good, evil, make sure you always choose choose good. We want you to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version. Depending on what you like, we got it for you. And if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.